Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery podcast. It's a place where we explore the world of horror in film, in literature, and in popular culture. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Bruce Markison. As always, I'm joined by co-host and producer Tracy Asteria. Tracy, welcome to the program. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Bruce. Enjoying my Christmas lights and my Christmas tree and the cold weather. How's everything been going for you? Things going well. It's um, hard to believe the Christmas season is moving very fast. And in this week's episode, as you know, Tracy, we're going to continue to explore the theme of Christmas horror. In our last episode, we talked to author Jeff Belanger about Christmas monsters, uh, featured in his terrific book, The Fright Before Christmas. Really was a fascinating show. And this week, we're going to delve into the world of Christmas-themed horror films. And we're going to do that with one of our favorite guests. This episode features the return of Josh Hitchens. Josh is an accomplished theater director, actor, playwright, among other things. He has authored several books that are part of the Haunted America series and has also performed numerous plays about subjects that include Dracula, Frankenstein, and the legend of Sleepy Hollow, just to name a few. And today, Josh will be discussing his favorite Christmas horror movies with us. He'll also delve into Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And if there's some time left over, we'll maybe touch on one or two other items. Uh, Josh, welcome back to the Ghostly Gallery podcast. Great to have you with us a second time. How are you? I'm well, and I'm so excited to be to be back on the podcast. Thank you both for having me. Well, you didn't think we were going to let you go with just one appearance. We'd, uh, <laughs> we'd love to have you on on a regular basis. We'll have to work on that contract, that. I guess. Today, we're going to spend <laughs> most of our time discussing your 12 favorite Christmas horror movies. When we had you on the first time in the fall, you did a great job giving us your 10 favorite horror movies ever. And in that, you included two films that you would also put in the category of Christmas movies. So we're going to talk about those two briefly and then getting to get into some other films that you didn't talk about the first time around. The first film is from 1974, Black Christmas. Uh, it's a terrific film, stars Olivia Hussey, Margot Kidder, John Saxon gives us one of the early slasher movies in horror history with Christmas on the campus as a backdrop. And obviously you love this one. I do. Yeah. I mean, Black Christmas, uh, of course, you know, from the previous episode is one of my favorite horror movies ever made. And it's also one of the best Christmas horror movies. And I think is a movie that um, did not get a lot of, attention when it was initially released i mean it was very big in canada where where it was produced and where it came out and won many uh awards there won many gemini awards including one for best actress for Margot kidder's performance but it didn't really come uh across as like a big addition to the horror film canon in the united states i think till probably about 20 years ago is when people really started to pay attention to it again and really give it the respect it deserves um it is a brilliantly brilliantly written directed and acted film um captures the atmosphere of christmas uh really really perfectly i think 
and is one of the most unsettling sort of early slasher movies, um, as we spoke about on the last episode, because you at the end of the movie, you are not quite sure who the killer is. Um, there are several suspects, one, one that seems very likely, but you never quite know. The film leaves you in sort of this unsettling place, uh, which is I, I find really great. Uh, if you have not seen Black Christmas, definitely check it out. Um, it's really, really extraordinary film. Um, do not watch the remakes, <laughs> um, but the original is fantastic. I love it. There's been at least two, maybe three remakes. You didn't really care for any of them? Uh, not really, no. Um, I And I. it's not that I think they're necessarily bad, bad movies. Um, and I think there's a lot of great intent that went into making them. Um, but I think they did what reboots and remakes of horror films in particular often do and that they try to explain too much. Whereas I think one of the great virtues of Black Christmas is that it leaves a lot of things unexplained. It leaves a little bit of mystery, um, you know, like the killer's backstory. You never, you don't learn at all in the in the original Black Christmas and in the remakes and the reboots. They do go into you know more of crafting a backstory for uh, the killer, um, which which is interesting in a way, and you know, interesting to view as a com- as a companion piece to the original. But the original is definitely the be- the best version. Then we have a film that takes place in the dead of winter. It's from 1980. It's considered a classic. Stephen King's The Shining. Yeah, and the shine the shining literally is a Christmas movie, you know, because a lot of people, you know, forget or if you haven't watched it in a while, it has it has the title cards throughout the film of the day of the week and the date and you know, the shine the shining leads up to Christmas uh, as Jack Torrance gets more and more, you know, thrown under the spell of the Overlook Hotel or is just straight up going insane, whichever interpretation you want to subscribe to and maybe it's a mixture of both um but i think that really adds uh, another level of creepiness to the shining because that it, it's a very frightening and unsettling movie all on its own for different reasons you know both in the visuals that kubrick creates you know that have become famous like the you know the elevator opening and you know just hundreds of gallons of blood pouring out or you know what's in the room in the hotel that no one is supposed to go into when you finally find out what that is. Uh, so it, it's creepy on that level. It's also unsettling on the level of the human too, because what you're watching here is the story of, a f- you know, a father and a husband gradually losing his mind and starting to be have violent thoughts towards his wife and his child. And they are stuck in this hotel in this snowstorm with no way to escape. So that that's horrifying, too. And then you add on the other layer that all that is taking place as we're hurtling towards Christmas, I think, is just a really, really love, uh, lovely mixture of things. You mentioned the title cards, Josh. I'm trying to remember, does the end of the film, does that come on Christmas Day? Uh, so I think, I believe, I believe so. And I know that yeah. the the final image, the, the famous final image of the film where uh, 
one of I for anyone who hasn't seen it, I won't spoil it, but for where one of the characters is depicted in a photograph uh from many, many years ago at the Overlook. Um it it is the New Year's Eve mm. ball uh in that very final image of the movie. Tracy, um the the next film that is coming up um is uh one from nineteen seventy-two, Tales from the Crypt. But it also influenced a TV episode for the HBO series. Uh, the episode was called All Through the House, and that was many years later, 1989. But that is pretty much the same story as we saw in the anthology film, 1972. So, Josh, you kind of group the original Tales from the Crypt movie with the TV series episode, and this would be uh, the first in our series that we're going to sort of tackle chronologically from 1972 uh, through 2015. Uh, Again, Tales from the Crypt, 1972, and then the TV series, 1989. Tell us what you like specifically about the anthology film. There are several stories, but there is one that's very much a Christmas theme. Sure thing. Yeah. I mean, uh, First of all, I always really am fascinated by examining horror films uh, in this way, like chronologically, especially when you're looking at a sort of a microcosm of the history of Christmas horror, which I think is basically what we're doing in a way, Um, because you see how certain elements come to the fore and are used in different ways and then fall out of fashion and then others take their place. And uh, so 1972 Tales from the Crypt is from, from what I've been able to see is the first depiction of uh, a killer Santa Claus in film, uh, which will be, which is something that becomes more and more ubiquitous uh, as time goes on. But uh, Tales from the Crypt in 1972 was, I believe the third horror anthology film from Amicus Productions. Um, and I'm a huge fan of the Amicus anthology films. Um, I love, if you ever want to do a whole episode about Amicus Studios, I would love to come back for that. But, uh, 1972 Tales from the Crypt, the first, it has the frame story, of course, where, uh, a group, a group of people are on a tour viewing this old, this old, historic crypt and they're locked in a room with the crypt keeper who is played by uh sir ralph richardson who worked for one day on that film and i'm sure was paid a lot of money for his time uh and then he relates stories about each of them and that's what the film is and the very first story in tales from the crypt in 1972 is an adaptation of and all through the house uh, which was originally in the uh, EC, uh, EC Comics, Tales from the Crypt comic book in the early 1950s. So the story's about 20 years old at the point that it's made into film in 1972. And this segment stars Joan Collins um, as a woman who on Christmas decide, decides she's going to murder her husband uh, so she can inherit his money. Uh, but encounters some difficulties, um, notably that the husband is bleeding all over the very 70s white shag carpet in the living room. Um, and also their daughter, Carol, 
I uh, love that she's named that. I think that's a nice touch. Is upstairs and is like, where's where's Santa, mummy? Um, she's like, go upstairs, kid. Uh, but then also, as she's trying to clean up evidence of the murder, make it look like an accident, uh, there is a news bulletin on the radio that a homicidal maniac dressed as Santa Claus has escaped from the local asylum and is at large. And sure enough, uh, he finds their house and is trying to get in. So she has to battle with that as well. And this sequence, this first adaptation of an all through the house is only about 12 minutes long um, and has very little dialogue in it, which I think is interesting. Um, most of it is scored to the sound of, you know, classic old, you know, Christmas carols uh, being sung on the radio as these horrific events are unfolding. So I think it, it's a really wonderful juxtaposition of things. And it, it just, the production design is fantastic. Again, the, how, the house they live in is decorated very, very 70s. And again, like the living room where the murder happens, everything is white. So the contrast with that, with the very ridiculously red, almost orange kind of stage blood that, you know, Hammer and Amicus Studios often used in the 60s and 70s uh, is really fun. And like all the like all the EC Comics stories uh, has a wonderful, wonderful twist ending uh, that I won't spoil, uh, but it's great. And I also love the depiction of the the killer Santa, the murder Santa, as many people call them uh, in this movie, in that he doesn't look, he doesn't look scary. He looks like this very kindly old grandfather, you know, like in a Santa suit, like what you might expect Santa to look like. And he just happens to be absolutely crazy uh, and is trying to kill Joan Collins. So I love the juxtaposition of that uh, as well, that, you know, you're expecting this, you know, very scary killer and he just he looked he looks like granddad uh you know which i think is very effective then you've got the 1989 episode from the very popular hbo series tales from the crypt and the episode called all through the house stars mary ellen trainer and i believe larry drake as well mm-hmm yeah, and that episode was actually directed by Robert Zemeckis, uh, who is one of the main uh, figures in getting the Tales from the Crypt HBO series uh, produced and on TV. And that was a show that I encountered, you know, when it was first on, that I absolutely was too young to be watching at the time. Uh, but I would, it was one of those things where I would like sneak, sneak downstairs late at night and watch Tales from the Crypt. Um, but you know, I turned out okay. Um, so it's, it's interesting to compare the two adaptations. Uh, you can both, both Tales from the Crypt from 1972 is available. It, you can watch it on YouTube as well as the eighties and nineties television series. Uh, so in 1972, the adaptation of an all through the house is, as I said, 12 minutes long, but they have to, for the TV show in 1989. And I believe if I remember correctly. I think it was the, uh, the first episode they actually produced. It wasn't the first episode to air, but it was the first one they made. And so they have to expand this, what was originally, you know, a few pages in a comic book to a third, to 30 minutes of airtime. Uh, so, you know, this, the basic plot of the 1989 version is, is the same, um, but there's some 
additions that they make to it in terms of like the wife. It's made clear that the wife has a lover um, that she's planning on running away with after she gets her husband's money. Um, there's a lot of intrigue about that. Uh, and there's also the addition of a horrible like snowstorm that is happening uh, outside, which you don't get in the 1972 version. Um, so I think that's a really nice innovation and a way, and a way to up, make the stakes even higher that, you know, she's trying to get out of this, trying to get out of this house, but she's trapped in the snowstorm. Um, one, one thing about the night, it's a really, really great adaptation, very well directed, very well acted by everybody. Uh, the main difference in the 1989 version of an all through the house though, is, uh, the way they depict the Santa Claus. Uh, and in the 1989 version, he's really kind of this grotesque looking guy with like crazy eyes and like very bad teeth and like looks like what you might imagine, like crazy homicidal maniac Santa Claus to look like. Um, and I, that's the one choice that I, I personally like a little bit less because uh, I, I really loved how they, you know, depicted it in the 1972 version where he's not what you expect. Seems like kindly old man. Um, he was crazy, but it, it is an excellent adaptation. Um, and that is a wonderful, wonderful television series that, you know, I, I think is up for some rediscovery, you know, because there's been a lot of issues with the rights to that property and the rights to the character of the Crypt Keeper specifically. So it's not streaming anywhere um, and hasn't for many years. Uh, it's very hard to find on physical media. Uh, it's largely out of print, but it is an excellent show and it's on YouTube. Um, oh. <laughs> so you can find it there. Oh, interesting. Um, I, I remember watching some of those some of those episodes from, from the series when I was younger, but that's interesting that you say that because I really have not been able to find it anywhere. So that, that's a really great point. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so the next, the next movie that you have on your list is one that I just recently saw a couple of years ago called Christmas Evil but it's also known as You Better Watch Out from 1980. Can you tell us about that and what your thoughts are about that movie? Sure thing. Yeah. And um, and I'd love I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well. Um, it's also a movie that I didn't see until just a couple of years ago. Um, the okay. only the thing that introduced it to me is that uh, it was on one of the Christmas episodes of uh, the last drive in with Joe Bob Briggs, which airs on uh, the streaming service Shutter, which I love. Uh, but that's how I saw it for the first time. And Christmas Evil, um, again, was not the f it was not the first depiction of a killer Santa Claus, but is the first depiction of a killer Santa Claus in a full length film. Um, and came out in 1980, and its original title was indeed uh, "You Better Watch Out." which I think is such a better title uh, for that film because Christmas Evil makes it sound kind kind of like um, exploitative or, or trashy or whatever, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. But You Better Watch Out ties in so perfectly to the theme of the film. Um, and it, that film is really a labor of love. And I think uh, like a, several other movies that we're going to talk about uh, did, kind of got a bad reputation when it was released um 
it was in England. It was part of that big uh, video nasty ban, you know, banning uh, copies of films that happened uh, in the 1980s. Uh, and when it, it was released in the United States, but no one really went to see it. It kind of just van, kind of came and vanished without a trace. Uh, and it wasn't until the late 1980s uh, when John Waters uh, did many interviews and hosted screenings of the film saying it was the best Christmas movie ever made, um, that it people started becoming aware of it again. Now I think it, it is much more beloved as it deserves to be. But Christmas Evil is such a labor of love. Uh, it was written and directed by a man named Lewis Jackson. And he actually had the original idea for the film 10 years earlier in 1970 um, and wrote the script and kept trying to get it made, kept you know sending it to producers. Nobody was interested. Uh, but in the meantime, Lewis Jackson did not give up on it. He started collecting all sorts of Christmas memorabilia and objects which you eventually see in the film uh in the main character's apartment is every inch of it's decorated with christmas stuff lewis jackson spent a decade collecting all that uh and it wasn't until 1978 when john carpenter's halloween came out and made a lot of money that suddenly producers were very interested in the script um and finally got to get it made and the film stars Brandon Maggart uh, as the lead character. And he, uh, the way the, fil the film starts in, uh, with a scene set in near Christmas in 1947, where you know, two, two little boys uh, you know, watch Santa come down the chimney and eat the cookies and leave them presents. But then one of the kids sneaks down later and sees Santa Claus kneeling down in front of mommy, uh, getting ready to do very in naughty things. And this traumatizes him, runs upstairs, uh, cuts his hand with a snow globe. Uh, and then the opening credits start and it's the film is set years later where that same kid, you know, kind of has this very lonely and isolated life, um, very centered around Christmas and Santa. Like he wake, he wakes up with, you know, Christmas carols on the record player. He sleeps in Santa Claus-esque pajamas. Um, and he works at a toy factory called the Jolly Dream, uh, which I think is so aptly named. Uh, and he has no friends, like his co, his coworkers think he's a, a moron and a loser. Um, and but he believes in the morality of Santa Claus about being about being good or people being evil. And he actually watches the neighbors and the neighborhood children uh, and has large books, uh, naughty boys and girls, good boys and girls, where he writes down their names and like why they're good, why they're bad. Um, and. There comes a mo there comes a moment in in the film. Uh, again, I won't spoil what it is, but there comes a moment where he finally embrace finally embraces his inner Santa and decides to be him. And it's a really, really emotionally like uh, just cra crazy moment and beautiful in a way, you know, because he starts putting he's looking in the mirror and he starts putting on like the beard uh, and gluing it to himself. And he's, he keeps saying he's crying and laughing, saying, it's me, it's me, it's me. 
Um, like he's final, he finally, for the first time in his life, feels comfortable in his own skin. And so he decides to go and be Santa. He goes to, uh, the local, um, mental institution for, for children, leaves them presents, paints a sleigh on his van. Um, so, you know, does good things for people who are good, but when he sees people being bad, then they get what they deserve. Um, but it, you know, again, it's it, it was depicted when it was released by those who noticed it as like, oh, this is this is an ex- exploitative trash, and it's actually a very be- it's a beautifully made film. Like it looks like the way the cinematography is again, it's so soft and captures the glow of like Christmas lights and snow. Um, it real like it, I, I heard someone describe the look of it once as almost Spielbergian, which I think is straight on. Um, it it's beautifully made, um, and clearly a labor of love for Lewis Jackson, the writer director, and he never made another film, um, which I think is such a great shame because Christmas Evil is an absolutely fantastic movie that everybody should watch every December. Oh yeah. It, uh, to me, I didn't know what to expect when I first saw it, but I, I found it was really, really good. I definitely did not expect the unusual ending. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that was a really unique twist. Um, and I definitely won't spoil it. I know it's an older movie, but I just did not see it coming. <laughs> yeah, I agree. The ending is absolutely amazing. Um, and one of the most effective uses of a freeze frame I think I've ever seen in film. But yeah, it's what, you got to watch it for yourself. Just get to see it. Absolutely. Well, you both have motivated me to watch it because I have not seen it. I'm going to look for it on streaming in these next few days. So yes. next up, Josh, is is our number three film or your number three film. And it's also a Santa Claus theme. And as I remember, this was a film that caused major controversy when it came out in 1984. It's Silent Night, Deadly Night. There was picketing by angry parents. I think for a while it might have been pulled from theaters uh, but this is a film that is really now a classic. Yeah, and I think all, and I think out of <clears throat> pardon me, I think out of all of the movies that we're talking about tonight, Silent Night, Deadly Night is the one that I think is the most misunderstood, and I think is still misunderstood. I still don't think that movie gets the credit it deserves for what it actually is. Um, but you're, you, you are, you're definitely right. It caused huge controversy when it came out in 1984. Um, it was actually, it was only in theaters for 10 days. Um, and then it was pulled and that was it. Uh, but it did, it made $2.5 million in the, in those 10 days, which is, which is pretty good. Um, and the the folks who made Silent Night, Deadly Night, uh, weren't expecting controversy of any kind because, again, like we just talked about four years earlier, Christmas Evil had come out with a guy dressed as Santa who's killing people. 1972, Tales from the Crypt, same thing. So they're like, okay, this has been done. Like, there wasn't much hubbub about it. Uh, so they made their movie. Um, the original title of it was Sleigh Ride. Uh, S-A-L-A-S-L-A-Y. Uh, but then they changed it, uh, before it was released to Silent Night, Deadly Night. 
And a lot of the commercials for it at the that aired on TV at the time, you know, depicted the killer dressed as Santa Claus and parents were outraged, saying that their children were afraid of Santa Claus now. Um, and Siskel and Ebert at the height of their power um, in the early to mid 1980s on their TV show absolutely eviscerated this film and everyone involved in making it. Um, they read on the air the names of the actors and the crew uh, and then said, shame on you all. Uh, and wow. then read the names of the writer and director and said, you have absolutely nothing to be proud of. Uh, like just in it, which is insane to think of, hmm. to think about now, you know, that, that, that this would happen. And so Silent Night, Deadly Night got this reputation of being this very extreme, controversial film. Um, and it is an, and it is an extreme film. But I think a lot of the discourse surrounding its release, like really uh, does such a disservice to what the movie actually is. Uh, the movie is. is is not is uncomfortable to watch you know like the first basically 20 minutes half hour of the film is about again a young a young boy who what um who watches a a man dressed as santa claus murder his father and assault and then murder his mother in front of him and then after that happens he is sent to a a catholic orphanage where he encounters even more trauma, you know, like the nuns aside from one of them are not interested in helping him. Um, they're only interested in, pu in punishing him when he, when he acts out because of everything he's experienced, like the severe PTSD he has uh, and all that, like, it's not fun. It's not fun to watch. At, um, and it's not supposed to be. Uh, but then when we go, then the film goes to years later when the character uh, is 18 years old and is sent out into the world um, and is working at a, and is working at a department store uh, and eventually and eventually through a series of events, finally puts on puts on the Santa suit and start and starts to kill to punish people, to kill people who who are doing bad things Um and it, it's a wild ride. Uh, it also stars Linnea Quigley. Uh, and I, as I always say, if it's an 80s horror movie, if Tom Atkins is in it or Linnea Quigley is in it, you watch it because it's going to be worth your time. Um, and she has a very, very uh, memorable kill in this film involving a set of deer antlers on the wall. Uh, and that's all I'll say. But, oh goodness! <laughs> uh, and and I and I don't mean to say that like Silent Night, Deadly Night is all is all like bleak. Um, like there there is some great there are really great moments of humor in it as well. Um, it's very well balanced in that way. Uh, but what I never see any what I was not expecting when I first saw Silent Night, Deadly Night because I watched it for the first time a couple years ago when I was doing the 12 nights of terror series on my kitchens on horror podcast. And I was like, Oh yeah, this is like the controversial, you know, killer Santa movie. Definitely going to watch it. But what I wasn't expecting is that the end of the movie made me cry. Um, mm. And I won't, I won't, you know, give away what the ending is, but what I think I never hear anyone talk about, about this film is that 
what this movie is actually about is it is a it is a character study of a person who as a child was severely traumatized and meant and mentally harmed and as he was as he's growing up like the adults see that this kid is obviously in pain and distress and they don't do anything to help him uh and then of course that ca- that comes out and carries through when he's an adult as well in in the way it does it's actually one of the most effective and honestly most truthful movies i've ever watched that is about the effects of trauma on children um and like it is a it's a movie made with very serious intent like it's not mm. just kill, san, killer santa hacking people up like Silent Night, Deadly Night really has a lot to say. Um, and I think it really, really is due for a reappraisal in a, in a lot of ways. Um, but I, I highly recommend it. Again, it's, it, you know, for, first like half hour or so is a bit hard to get through. Um, but that's part of, that's part of, I think, what makes the film what it is. Um, yeah, it's, it is a movie. It, it's much more than what the controversy surrounding it has said is has said it is really see the deeper meaning but um now now i do that's uh really i think enlightening analysis and not you know not to pile on the late siskel and the late ebert who did great work for so many years both as writers and tv broadcasters but i i never got the sense that either of them were huge horror fans to begin with no no (laughs) generally not yeah Hey, yeah. really did not like horror, really hated David Lynch. Um, like, yeah, oh my <laughs> but, but yeah, but, but did do wonderful work. And as I, uh, as I've talked about elsewhere, uh, Roger Ebert wrote my favorite movie of all time, which is beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Uh, so oh, yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. So Josh, I have a quick question about, about this movie. Um, just, because it actually has a really good storyline. What are your thoughts? Like, do you think it would be a good approach to have another director kind of remake the movie? Or would you just prefer to just see it in its original form and, and just leave that work of art alone by itself? Mm. That's a great question. I mean, I, I always feel that, you know, no matter what happens or like, there's always room for for re for remakes or reboots or re-envisioning or revisiting mm-hmm. of material, but the the original is always going to be there. Like nothing is ever going to take anything away from that. Um, I actually do think there was a remake uh, oh. under a different. I think it was just called Silent Night. I feel like Donald Sutherland was in it. I might be making that up, um, <laughs> but yeah. Um, but it's interesting, like with Silent Night, Deadly Night, is that it eventually did spawn a bunch of sequels. I think there were mm-hmm. five of them in total. Um, but starting with uh, the second one, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part Two, which reuses a lot of footage from the first film because they had a very low budget. Uh, it, but its its tone is much more um, like car- cartoony might be the wrong word, but more like you know, and they're entertaining slasher with moments that'll make you chuckle. Um, right. You know, so I think that that also play like plays a part in the first movie, perhaps not being seen uh, f- at wholly for what it is, um, because the rest of the series 
uh, is more superficial in tone. And I don't, and I'm, and I don't mean that in a bad, the bad is a bad thing at all. Um, they're really fun. (laughs) It's a great holiday marathon to do watching those five. Uh, but the first movie is definitely different in tone. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I think I'm going to add those to my Christmas watch list. (laughs) Josh, next up is a film that's actually a French movie. I'm going to butcher the title. I know, uh, 3615 Code Pair Noel, also known by the much easier title of Deadly Games. This is one I have not seen. So fill us in on this one. Yeah. And again, this is a movie that I have to thank uh, the folks, the folks over at Shudder and Joe Bob Briggs and Darcy the Mail Girl for featuring on one of their Christmas specials a couple of years ago. Um, mm. But it, it it's a movie that a lot of people aren't aware of because it actually was was not released in the United States until 2018. Uh, was made 1989 in France. Um, was very well received there, uh, but it didn't come out in the U.S. until 2018, and then was per, like when people finally saw it. Critics, U.S. critics saw it. They're like, "Oh, this is a this is a Christmas horror masterpiece," and I think it is. Um, yeah, it it goes by many different titles. So like uh, like you know. Uh, 3615 Code Père Noël is the original, which literally translates to dial code Santa Claus. It's known by that. It's also known as Hide and Freak, or which is a weird title, uh, or Deadly Games is primary is the title. I think it's probably best known by, uh, in the United States, but it's, it's a really, uh, I, I do have to say right off the bat with, with this film, the dog does die, uh, Aww. in the movie. Um, that's mm. actually like the turning point in the film when the ki- when the killer who again is dressing up as Santa um, on the guise of getting into this kid's this kid's house and robbing it uh, that when when the killer gets in the house and mur- and murders the dog that's when it, it becomes like you the, the stakes get a lot higher I mean, because before that it, it's almost like fantastical in a way. Um, but yeah, that's when you're like, okay, th- this is going to be a battle to the death between, you know, this, this little kid who is very, very good at, um, you know, invent inventions and traps and this, you know, robber dressed as Santa Claus. Um, and that might sound a little familiar when I'm describing the plot, because it sounds a lot like Home Alone, um, <laughs> which was released in 1990. And the director of Code Pair Noel or Deadly Games actually actually considered suing uh because he said they he straight up well on the record saying like they ripped off my movie um because you know this movie was widely seen in france and in europe and acclaimed but not in the u.s and home alone is very similar like the the way the the kid the young boys characterized is pretty much identical um the whole like idea of like elaborate booby traps, you know, throughout the house that, that like escalate and become more and more crazy and ridiculous. Like it's all, it's all in, in deadly games as well. And he ultimately decided, the director ultimately decided not to sue because he was like, that's, that's going to, I'm probably going to lose money. They'll probably, I'll probably never win, but like you can't, once you watch it, like it's hard to deny that, someone involved in home alone must have seen this movie um 
but it's a it, it's a great great film it's a lot it's a lot despite the dog dying it is a lot of fun um like the the design of the house that they lived in like there's this like secret all these secret tunnels and chambers under this this big secret area in the middle that's like filled with toys and stuff that like again almost fantasy like uh it's really interesting and i think like the end of christmas evil has a final line a final image that you're just like oh oh wow that that hits um yeah yeah it is it's it's excellent i highly recommend it does it have any (laughs) tone like the other movie or is it a film that is straight serious that's a great question. Uh, it is definitely not not a comedy in the way that Home Alone is a comedy, uh, of right. course. Uh, but i I wouldn't call I wouldn't call it, you know, completely serious either. Um, like there 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 is there is some light some lightness to it, and there and there's a lot of fun to be had, you know, because you're seeing this this kid like you know. Do, like really doing well against against this this you know killer Santa dude, um, and you're like yay, um, and it's just really fun watching his inventiveness and the ways they do that, uh, and they keep sort of topping themselves, um, you know. But I and there's one point where uh, the killer actually does catch the kid, and he says, "Okay, now you're it." I'll hide and you try to find me. So then the story shifts again. So I think that's what like Deadly Games, I think is not a bad uh, choice for an Americanized version of the title because it really does feel uh, for most of the movie like a cat and mouse game, you know, between the kid and this this Santa guy. Oh, my gosh. Do you know, is that movie readily available to stream anywhere that you're aware of? Or is it a little more difficult to find? Mm-hmm. Uh, I know it is definitely it is definitely still on Shutter as of this moment. Um, mm-hmm. I know it was on Tubi for a while. I'm not sure if it still is, um, but I would definitely I would search for, use Deadly Games when searching for it because um, okay. that when I've seen it on streaming that that is how it's always been identified. Oh, that's fascinating! Thank you. Thank you. So at number five. We have Misery, which is a 1990 classic based on a book by one of my favorite authors, Stephen King, starring the iconic Kathy Bates. Can you share your thoughts on that one? Yeah. So, yeah, there's two Stephen King movies on my, on my list of best Christmas <laughs> horror movies. Um, and even though like Misery isn't explicitly Christmas, I feel I feel like it counts, you know, because it's all about. It is. It, it's a film set in in the winter, and the entire conceit of the film, especially at the beginning, revolves around the fact that there's been this immense blizzard, and no, and they can't, and they're in this isolated house together. Um. So, and, and there, uh, in spite of its horror, like there, there's a, there's also a, a warmth to the film version of Misery that I think, um goes along with the Christmas season very well. Uh, it's directed by Rob Reiner, who also, who along with misery also directed probably the best, I think adaptation of a Stephen King work stand by me. Um, also in the eighties, I wish he directed Rob Reiner did more Stephen King. Cause I feel like he's one of very few directors that really adapts King. Well, um, and there's a lot that don't, 
Uh, and it's a great script by William Goldman, um, who, of course, like won the Oscar for writing all the president's men in the 1970s. So like the script is amazing. The actors are amazing. I mean, of course, you have, you know, Kathy Bates and James Caan um, as the central characters. But in the supporting cast, a lot of which were invented for the movie, you have Lauren Bacall as, you know, Paul Sheldon's agent. You have Richard Farnsworth and Francis Sternhagen, who just very recently passed away. Um uh, as the sheriff and his wife are investigating, providing comic relief. Um, so it's, it's a small, it's all, it's a small movie, a chamber piece. And that's what I think makes it re- really frightening at times. Uh, because, you know, like Paul, you're kind of like Paul Sheldon, you know, the writer who's been imprisoned by Annie Wilkes and that like you're in this place and you can't, and you can't, and you can't get out. Um, and just, I mean, watching Kathy, Kathy Bates is, of course, gone on to give many other amazing, brilliant performances in movies. But there's something I think very special about her work as Annie Wilkes in Misery, because, you know, it wasn't her first film, but it was her first big role, first leading role in a film. And I feel like watching Misery, you're just watching an actor who's been working for years, like in theater regionally and then on Broadway was highly, highly respected as a theater actor, but just blossoming in front of the camera. And like the, the first moment, you know, because at first she seems very, like very nice and angelic nurse, but that first moment where she loses it and like, you know, you see that there's something really wrong with her mm-hmm. and that's all. And it's all done in one take. Like you just see her completely change, like her personality completely change, like she's become a completely different person and then go back again. And I feel like that's the reason why one of the reasons why like she won the Oscar for Best Actress for that performance, because like sometimes like a performance like that comes along and it's just so undeniably good and unique, like the performer is so unique that like just you yes yes you deserve all the awards for this yeah it's a it's an excellent movie and i have a great affection for the book uh because i i read the book it, the books one i think stephen king's best as well mm-hmm. and i read it for the very first time in the winter time uh when i was in middle school i think uh and there was a big snowstorm that had happened outside and i was also sick with the flu and oh, my gosh. mom and my mom was going to like to Walmart or something to get stuff. And she asked me if I wanted anything. And I had got I'd read several Stephen King books by then. I was like, if they have misery, could you get that for me? And they did have misery. Hmm. And she brought it back. And the edition I had had like all these snowflakes on the cover. And I sat laid in my bed and read the book from cover to cover in a day. Um, in the, in a setting very much like the book where like, you know, I was sick, couldn't get out of bed, snowstorm outside. So I think that's another reason why misery, both the book and, and the film feel very, very wintry and Christmassy to me. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's one of the best of the King, maybe the best of the King adaptations on film. It's terrific. Uh, number six on your chronological list countdown of Christmas horror films 
is the Nightmare Nightmare Before Christmas, 1993. It's the sole animated film on your list, written by Tim Burton and directed by a guy named Henry Selick, a stop-motion animation expert. What do you like about this one? So this is a movie that is very, very close to my heart, as, as it is with many people. Uh, but I, it, it came out at, at the perfect time for me. Like I was... Of an, I was of an age where I'd already knew, like as a kid, where I already knew that I was interested in in like horror and scary things. Loved Halloween, and I feel like at least in my mindset back then, when I was little, that like you were either like a Halloween person or you were a Christmas person, you know, like one or the other. And Nightmare Before Christmas, when it came out, was a movie that was made for for both of those people and showed that you can't that you can love both that both love of both of those very different holidays can can live within you. And I saw I was entranced by like the previews and commercials for it on TV. I saw it the very first day it was released in theaters, Uh, saw it several times in theaters and then uh, got the VHS the very first day it was released. Also at Walmart. Um, I grew up in a small town. Walmart was the store <laughs> there uh, that had all the things. Um, but I feel I, and it, it makes me really happy that the nightmare before Christmas has continued to be so beloved by, you know, subsequent generations to me. Cause I think it's, it's such an incredible achievement. I mean, first of all, just technically, like the the artistry of the stop motion animation and the design of the characters and the world that they exist in is just absolutely incredible to look at. And the fact that, you know, all that work is done by hand, frame by frame, is mind blowing. And I'm glad that 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 the film uh, kind of re-energized an interest in stop motion animation, which had kind of been considered like passe uh, by, you know, the late eighties, early nineties, I think. And I, you know, the song, the songs are incredible. Um, thank you, Danny Elfman for that. <laughs> and also just wonderfully directed by Henry Selick, uh, who I think often doesn't get, you know, the flowers he deserves for nightmare before Christmas. Um, Cause although Tim Burton, came up with the original idea. It started out as a poem that he wrote in the 80s when he was working at Disney. Um, but Tim Burton wasn't involved in the making of the film at all by his own choice. Uh, he mm. he just he didn't want to take the l- immensely lengthy period of time it would take to to do the stop motion. Um, so what you're seeing is, is Henry Selleck's work. Um, and it's an amazing achievement. And is really a movie that is but is great for kids. It's great for adults. It's a film that I think everyone can enjoy, and it's a, one of those movies that you can you can start watching that in October, and you can watch it all the way through December. You know, it is both a Halloween movie and a Christmas movie all wrapped up into one, um, and just I think has a re- a really wonderful message about you know embrace about embracing who you are and that it's okay to love the things that you love um and it's a and sometimes you make mis you make mistakes or you overreach and you fail but you can get back up again um and that's a great that was a great message for little like what eight-year-old 
Josh <laughs> to to receive. Yeah. Um, love it. One other comment I had on this one. It's a weird movie. There's a lot of weirdness in it, which I really enjoy. I think the weirdest element, though, is the character of Dr. Finkelstein, a mad scientist. He looks like Howard the Duck to me. <laughs> <laughs> he does. You're right. <laughs> the head, yeah. the way the head is designed. Yeah. And the mouth. Mm hmm. All right, number seven on our countdown is from 1997, Jack Frost. This is not the comedic film with Michael Keaton and Kelly Preston that came out one year later. This is the one about a serial killer being taken to his execution, but before he can be killed, he mutates into a deadly snowman. <laughs> and the movie is as ridiculous as that description sounds, and that's why I love it. Uh, there was also a children's cartoon uh, called Jack Frost that came out in 1996, uh, a year before this movie we're talking about came out. Uh, so there were there. I don't know if anyone ever actually did this, but there were stories that like people would go to the video stores and swap the the cop the copy so children who were thinking they were getting this cartoon jack frost instead got this killer snowman movie <laughs> um yeah jack frost uh is like christmas evil was very much a labor of love um by michael cooney who both wrote and directed it and he directed it because they didn't have the money to hire a director uh so he decided to do it himself and uh, it was made over a period of several years. They got initial funding for the movie, cast it, started filming. Money ran out, uh, so they decided what they would do, very much like David Lynch did with Eraserhead back in the 70s, is they would, whenever they got some money together, they would film when they could. Um, and so over a couple of years, they eventually finished the movie, um, it was never released in theaters. It was direct, you know, direct to video in 1997, which, you know, at that, at that time, like no one paid much, very few people paid attention to direct to video, uh, re releases, even though there's a lot of gold, especially in the horror genre with direct, with direct to VHS. Uh, and Jack Frost, I think, is a movie that, again, really, really deserves uh, some more love. Um, it is very funny. Um, I, I, it is, I think, one of the few examples I've seen in a movie where it is true camp. Because, for one thing, the actors in the movie are all phenomenal. They're all character actors that you've seen in a million movies or a million episodes. TV shows, but you don't know who their name, but you see them you're like, oh, I've seen that person before. Uh, and they're all great. And they all give it 100, like treat this movie 100% seriously, no matter how ridiculous the lines that they are saying are, no matter how absurd the plot is, they are committed. Um, and that I think that's why it's so funny. And that's why it's true camp, because camp only works if you play you you play it straight like you don't play like you're in this you know frosty basically frosty the snowman killer movie um yeah it it's really like killer frosty the snowman set in twin peaks is kind of what jack frost is like the town is called snowmonton um and it's just filled with these quirky people um deal dealing with a a killer snowman um it's a it's delightful. I, I highly recommend it. it is a it's a wonderful, wonderful fun ride. 
That is interesting. It's been a really long time since I've seen Jack Frost. I'll have to go back and revisit that one for sure. Um, So this next one, Josh, I was really happy to see this on your list. It comes in at number eight at 30 Days of Night from 2007. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, this this is kind of uh, in the same vein as Misery, where it's not explicitly set around Christmas, but it but it is a f- um, film about of winter, uh, and I think just it, it it it's so good to watch during this time. Whenever we have the first big snow of the year, which you know who knows if that's going to happen in Philadelphia this year, didn't <laughs> happen last year. But like 30 Days of Night is the is the movie I'll put on when that happens. Um, and it is, I think, one of the most interesting vampire movies I've seen, like truly and a truly original attack on the va- on the vampire story. Um, so 30 Days of Night uh, was originally intended to be a film. They couldn't get the funding. They turned it into a graphic novel, uh, which did really well and then were able to make it into a movie. Um but it is set in a town in Alaska where, and this is a real thing. Uh, there's, there are area, there's areas of Alaska where the sun sets and you ha- and does not rise again until about a month, about a month later. So it is, it is dark for 30 days straight. And a lot of people leave the town during that, during that time, but some people stay, um, cause you know, might drive some people nuts would drive me nuts. Um, but so 30 days of night takes that real, that real situation and then says, what if vampires knew about that? And so when in this town, when the sun sets, it's not going to rise again for a month, the, uh, a crew of vampires arrive and on the first, on the first and like, don't have to worry about the sun for all this time. So the first night they slaughter, almost everyone in the town and that's it's that is such a frightening and also beautiful sequence to look at in a way because you know you there's this shot that like the camera just pans up and up and up like it's you know the the bird's eye view and you just see this small town with like snow everywhere and just these trails of blood in this in the snow um but there are a small band of survivors who survive that night and they're trying to both get get to the time when the sun stay alive until the sun rises again um, but also eventually try and stop the vampires because they realize what the vet this crew of vampires does is they travel throughout the world to places like this so if they don't stop them they're just going to go do it somewhere else and the vampires in this movie, I think, are really refreshing in a way because we're so used to like sexy vampires or quirky vampires, I feel. But the vampires in 30 Days of Night are the are feral creatures. They're disgusting to look at. Like they they are covered in blood, like their mouths and faces and like torsos are just covered in blood because they just, they, they feed and you know, why, why would they wash their face? They don't. Uh, and their fingernails are long and dirty and like have this blood and flesh in them. So like they are not, they're not attractive vampires. They are li- actually monstrous vampires, which I feel like you don't see very often uh, in, in horror. Um, but it's a, it's such an interesting movie. And again, if you're in a place where you get a big snow, 30 days of nights, a really good horror flick to put on, especially 
around the holiday time. Yeah, it's a great one. It's terrific. And I think it's the only vampire film on this list, right? It is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. All right, Josh, uh, let's wrap up your chronological countdown before we get to your number one horror film for the Christmas season. So at number nine in the chronologies from 2015, Krampus. This one is a combination of horror and black comedy. Great cast led by Tony Collette and Adam Scott. I love it. Obviously, you do, too. Yeah, and I, I feel like 2015 was the year that like mainstream cinema discovered Krampus existed. Because <laughs> um, in, in 2015, you know, this movie came out, uh, written and directed by Michael Doherty, also, who is also responsible for Trick or Treat, one of, I would say, like one of the top three Halloween movies ever, ever made. And um, Krampus is his second film. Uh, but also released in 2015 was the movie A Christmas Horror Story, uh, which features Krampus. And that's an anthology Christmas horror film uh, as well. That is also really fun to look at. Um, but there had been a direct-to-video Krampus movie a couple of years earlier, I think in 2012 or 2013. But 2015 and beyond is really when horror movies were like, oh, there's this whole other mythological creature we can we can use and exploit uh, for terror. Uh, mm. And Krampus, Mike Doherty's 2015 film, like, like you said, like, I, I think it's such a, a perfect blend of horror and comedy, um, which really, uh, I think, comes from the writer director, Mike Doherty's sensibility, because Trick or Treat is is very similar to that. And that there are moments that are really legitimately scary and also moments that are laugh out loud funny. There are moments that are heartwarming. Um, like his, the way he writes and the actors he casts, like the characters are always fully fleshed out human beings. You care about them. You care about what happens to them. Um, and I think it's, it's just such a wonderful film. And I love that they use for Krampus, they used practical effects for almost all, for almost all of it. Um, and it's, I, again, I think another rich seam of, of mytho of mythology to draw upon, you know, um, and like, cause we have the whole, you know, murder, Sa murder Santa thing. Um, and one thing I didn't mention in talking about deadly games is that in, in France, like there, there's Père Noël, who's Santa Claus, but there's also Père Fouettard, who is like the dark Santa Claus who punishes naughty children and adults. And Krampus, and Krampus is another version of that. You know, so I think it provides such a great uh, seed for horror that there, you, there is this being that if if you if you are bad or if you if if you lose your belief, if you lose your belief in in Christmas and the spirit of it and what it means that you're going to be punished for that. And that, that yeah. is its purpose. Um, I was interested because I know Bruce, uh, you featured Krampus on the ghostly gallery, Facebook page a little, just a couple days ago. Um, and I noticed you mentioned, uh, I think the, the bleakness of the ending. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Well, I, I guess I have to give away the, the ending if I do that. Um, mm. but, um, it's, well, I don't want to completely give it away. Yeah. But just like it the just final seems, shot, the final shot. Yeah. Mm. You know, they're, they're, they're in a snow globe and, um, there doesn't seem too much hope for them to get out of that. I guess that's, 
Mm. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's um, maybe there's a chance for redemption for this family. Uh, they have some good qualities, even though um, obviously uh, one of the, the young boys in the family has has lost his faith. And that perhaps is what has resulted in the visit from from Krampus. Um, but yeah, I just I kind of got the sense that um, there was no returning from that. Um, now, maybe I'm wrong in that interpretation. That was kind of what I felt. You have a different mm. view? No, yeah, I to- I totally see that. Um, and it, yeah, it's and why I wanted to bring it because like I I I always felt more maybe a little less bleak, which is unusual for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> like I, like I, I took it more as like, not in so much that perhaps they're trapped, but that he, that he, like they're, they're a family that he is going to be watching over now to make sure that they, you know, stay on the right path, which is, oh, I which is, okay. I suppose definitely more optimistic way, you know, but I think, again, I think, I think it's so fun because I think both of those interpretations work equally well. Mm. Um, yeah. And it, yeah, it's such, such a good movie. Um, and yeah, ending is definitely open to interpretation. I like your interpretation better. It's a lot more optimistic. <laughs> All right, Josh, that brings us to your number one Christmas horror movie. The previous nine, we went chronologically from 1972 to 2015. Number one on your list is a film from 1984 starring Zach Galligan, Phoebe Cates, and Hoyt Axton. It is Gremlins. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, for me, Gremlins is my favorite Christmas horror movie ever, ever made. Uh, And I, and I, I think it, you know, part of that is, is the nostalgia factor. Cause I, I saw Gremlins for the first time when I was, when I was quite young, uh, loved it. You know, even, even though there were moments in the movie that scared me as a little kid, I all, I loved it anyway. Uh, and watching Gremlins throughout the years is, is really a, a love, a nice comforting feel for me because when I watch it, and like see those those characters and like just the way the town looks, the way that the interiors of the houses look, looks like my childhood. Like it, mm. you know, reminds me of the town I grew up in, like those interiors, like with that, like, you know, brown, dark brown wood paneling in the rooms, like was in every room of the houses of my child of my growing up. Um, so there's something about gremlins in that way that just really feels homey to me uh i think but i also love gremlins i mean i think it's just a great achievement across the board you know amazing script by chris columbus uh really great direction by joe dante uh and wonderful performances from its entire cast um of great actors uh just, there's not there's not a wrong there's not a false note in gremlins for me uh, but i also think it in a similar way to Krampus, like blends horror and comedy very, very well. Um, and it also brings in a sense of wonder too about like the mad, the magic of that time before, you know, the grem, you know, the gremlins hatch and all hell breaks loose, of course. And I also think that Gremlins sits at the very top of my list because I think it is the Christmas horror movie that is brave is brave enough to say out loud that Christmas is a wonderful time. 
It's not a wonderful time for everyone all the time, though. Uh, and it really comes out in that central monologue that uh, Phoebe Cates' character has about why, how she came to not believe in Santa Claus. Uh, and I won't share why that is in case anyone hasn't seen it. Uh, but she, there's one sentence she says near the beginning of it. Uh, she says, you know, because Zach Galligan's character is like, why don't you like Christmas? Why don't you like Christmas? It's great. It's fun. It's wonderful family. Um, and Phoebe Cates' character says, like, for some people, like, Christmas isn't great for everybody. For some people, when others are opening up their presents, they're opening up their wrists, uh, mm. which is a shocking thing to say, um, yeah. you know, still still today, but is true. Um, and I and I feel like Gremlins is so excellent in that it confronts that darkness, like that fact that, you know. A lot of people are are lonely on Christmas. A lot of people don't have families they can go to for whatever for whatever reason or a friend group that they can go to. You know, that's not a great time. But it also at the same time embraces the embraces the idea that you can that you can find uh, that that community, you can find a connection with people that is possible, and both of the and both of those extremes, the light and dark of Christmas, exist alongside one another. And I I just feel like that captures the spirit of this time so so well uh, in a way that like a Christmas Carol does also. Um, and Gremlins, I. I just think is a, a delightful movie. I was originally supposed to be a much darker movie than it ended up being um, like Zach Galligan's mom in the original script was supposed to be decapitated by a gremlin. Originally Gizmo was supposed to become evil. He was supposed to become Stripe, the head evil gremlin. Uh, and it was Steven Spielberg who convinced uh, the script, the script writer and the director to keep Gizmo throughout the film because Gizmo is very cute and cuddly and people and like would knew people would fall in love with him as they did. Uh, and it's also just aston astonishing puppetry work uh, in that film to watch, you know, because you're not not like they're not nothing you see is like computer animated or digital effects or anything. These like all Gizmo and all the gremlins. These are all practical puppets uh, that were created for this film and done. Um, and, the the crew hated the gizmo puppet because the because it was smaller so it kept breaking down a bunch um so the crew actually in their frustration started a list among themselves titled terrible things to do to gizmo um and one of those things appears in the film uh the scene where in the bar where uh giz gizmo is on like the dartboard and the the gremlins are throwing darts at him that's in the film because that was uh one of the things the crew wanted to do to gizmo um because he kept really? breaking down on them hmm. um but yeah and of course even though wasn't gremlins is not directed by steven spielberg was produced by him uh just again has that really captures the look and feel of Christmas. Like again, the glow of those mul of multicolored lights outside on snow, the warmth, the warmth of being inside with the cold outside. Um, I, I think it's a perfect movie. Uh, I really, really do. The sequel's pretty good too. 
Well, it's a great list. A tremendous number of uh, outstanding horror films during the Christmas season, set in the Christmas season. Uh, Twelve films topped off by Gremlins from 1984. Josh, before we let you go, I wanted to get a few thoughts on A Christmas Carol. First published by Charles Dickens 180 years ago, was 1843. It has been adapted onto film more than 55 times, and it's a film that you have adapted into your own one-man play. Tell us what you really think is important, most important about A Christmas Carol. Yeah, A Christmas Carol is honestly, I think, my favorite story ever written. Um, it is my fate of all the solo one-person shows I have done. I've done. It is. It was the first one I ever did back in 2010. Uh, and it is still my favorite one to perform uh, because I, I I think it's it's such a beautiful story. And I think it is a story that we need so much um, as the human race, you know, because that I mean that and that was true back in 180 years ago. That was why Charles Dickens wrote it. You know, he wrote he wrote it not because he wanted to write this like cute, cute little story like he wrote the book to in hope that people would read the book and it would cha- and it would change them and it would cause people to look at the to look at the poor to look at the destitute all those in need everyone less fortunate or marginalized and do and instead of just looking at them and seeing them and walking past them on the street actually doing something about it um, like I, I feel like it gets lost a lot of the time, but like the reason why the book is called a Christmas Carol comes from the text when Scrooge is with the ghost of Christmas past. And he says, there was a little boy singing a Christmas Carol at my door last night. I should have given him something, mm. um, like that. And that it, that's the core of the book. And also that it is possible for us as human beings to change that it is never that it is never too late to change, to break out of the cycle that you're in, to be a better person, whatever that means to you, uh, to be a happier person, to connect with other human beings around you. And that's a story that's never that is never going to be all to be old. It's always going to be relevant. Um, and it's a story that I think we need to hear, you know, like it it said so much like tiny when tiny tim says god bless us ev- everyone you know and it's become like such an iconic quote that i think we don't really hear what me like the true meaning i think behind it like in the book ends with that it ends with god bless us everyone not just some people not just you not just me not just the those folks over there everyone is deserving of blessing um I love it. I love A Christmas Carol so much. Um, the 1984 George C. Scott is my favorite film version of it as well, although there are many great ones. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to ask both you and Bruce, what your favorite adaptations of A Christmas Carol are. So yours is the George C. Scott. Bruce, did you have a favorite adaptation? Well, I do like the George C. Scott one. That's an excellent choice by mm-hmm. Josh. My favorite has always been the one from 1970, which is a musical, but also is a very dramatic and really has tinges of a horror film. It is called Simply Scrooge. It stars Albert Finney, uh, beautifully mm-hmm. filmed, just wonderful sets, uh, both indoors and outdoors. 
and has some pretty frightening moments. I, I've made the argument that I think it's a horror film, even though maybe some would not agree. So I would go with 1970 Scrooge. Uh, how about you, Tracy? Do you have one that you like? I do. My favorite is it's well, it's the Christmas Carol, but it's also known as Scrooge from 1951 mm -hmm. starring Alistair Sim as Ebenezer Scrooge. Just that is my absolute favorite story. I watch it every Christmas Eve. Yeah, I think I yeah, both both of the ones you said I think are all like are so so good. So, like excellent excellent versions. Well, Josh, as always, this has been great. We really appreciate your thoughts, your top 12 Christmas horror films, and also some very poignant thoughts on A Christmas Carol and its continuing significance and meaning in culture. Uh, Josh has a website, joshhitchens.com. You can find him on Facebook as well. Uh, he does it all. He is uh, an actor, an author, theater director, playwright, uh, just a, a wealth of knowledge about the genre of horror in so many different areas, both with written word and uh, on stage and on screen. Josh, thank you. We appreciate it. Merry Christmas to you also. Merry Christmas to you both. Thank you so much for having me on. Our guest, Josh Hitchens. Uh, Merry Christmas as well to uh, my co-host and producer, Tracy Asteria, who does such a wonderful job. Hope your holiday is a good one, uh, Tracy. Thank you for being with us. We hope you've enjoyed this Museum of the Macabre, and we hope that you'll join us again next time right here in the Ghostly Gallery.